This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. All right. In the beginning, there was Howard the Duck. <laughs> was that in the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> well, during that explanation of like worlds upon worlds. Yeah, yeah. There's so many worlds that worlds can repeat but be slightly different. <laughs> we watched Howard the Duck. We did. Finally. It's written into finally is the right way to put it. It's written and directed by the writers of Temple of Doom and American Graffiti. And let's take a listen to the trailer. Let's do it. Across the sea of stars lies another world, a world almost exactly like ours. This is where he lives. He's 27 years old, single but searching. Favorite sports, windsurfing and Aikido. Favorite pastimes, cigars and sex. He has everything except fulfillment. And then one night, it happens. Hey, good buddy, are you home? has a very sudden midlife crisis. He lands in Cleveland. You do know why you were sent to me. Maybe you're here for some greater purpose, some cosmic cause. Here, he's forced to reassess his career goals. You went to med school? To explore new relationships. (laughs) To redefine his self-image. I'm sorry, we don't allow pets on the premises. Until he discovers just who he really is. A duck in big trouble. That's a duck, man. Howard the duck, trapped in a world he never made. Fuck off. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, boy. Well, I was going to read off some of the taglines for this movie. You will believe that a duck can talk. Okay. All oh, right. Sure. Is that, a ta- is that a takeoff of, like, another tagline from that era? Like, oh. you would believe that something could talk, you know? Probably, probably. But then then some very punny shit, like a, a new breed of hero, mm-hmm. more adventure than humanly possible. And then this one, which they actually just said in the trailer, and I constantly question, is trapped in a world he never made. Right. What the fuck does that mean? The poster of Howard the Duck that I had hanging on my wall all through college <laughs> said the same thing, and I was like, what the fuck does that well, cause mean? Because he certainly is trapped in a world that he never made, but the world that he was originally in, he also didn't right. make. he's so a duck. He's a duck in a world. I, it Literally, I can't wrap my head around it in yeah. any form. No, all right. Well, okay, so the short little plot line synopsis of this movie is <laughs> short luck. plot line synopsis of... Yeah. <laughs> A sarcastic humanoid duck is pulled from his home world to Earth where he must stop a hellish alien invasion with the help of a nerdy scientist and a cute, struggling female rock singer who fancies him. That's how they describe it. I mean, that's the best description that I could imagine, actually. Right, right. And and what's crazy is I didn't know... Now, okay, I forgot to say, I've seen this movie more times than ever necessary. This was completely up my alley being a child of the 80s and 90s who didn't know any better. And so... (laughs) I feel like you were the only person that this movie was made for. Because I don't know who would actually sit there and enjoy this in the 80s. Dude, I know. And we'll get to the the chaos that that surrounds this whole thing. This was my first time seeing it. I'd heard the legends, but, you know, it did live up to the hype of being the craziest movie ever. And I definitely was apologizing, but just straight up hardcore (laughs) watching Jeff's 
face as he experienced it. But okay, so the actual character Howard the Duck, I was not familiar with the comic book character, right? Mm -hmm. So even he is, in fact, just a cigar-smoking anthropomorphic duck who lived in New Stork City Mm -hmm. on planet Duck World in a parallel universe, whatever. And the whole premise is that he gets sucked here. Like in the movie, The Dark Overlord, the Jeffrey Jones character, Mm -hmm. is based on the Marvel villain who originally brought Howard to Earth in the comics, whose full name is Thog, the Netherspun Overmaster of Sominus. Okay, so there was like, this This was confusing to me in the movie where it's like there's other aliens who are bringing Howard, another alien, to Earth right. for reasons. This origin story is all over the place. <laughs> they spend so much time with the duck tits and the sex- sexy... They oof. spend a lot of time on a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, so let's get to the dumpster fire of okay, this, the yeah, making of this movie. Yeah. So. George Lucas's close friend John Landis was originally slated to direct the movie, okay. but he turned it down. Well, because what else? John Landis has directed to ton of shit. Yeah, I think good has. stuff. But I guess he felt the police car crashes in the finale were too similar to those in his previous film, The Blues Brothers from 1980, so he turned right. it down. But I was like, is <laughs> That's that... That's hilarious. There's so much different about this film, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then this actual director, William Hayek, or it looks like this... Yuck. Typo is yuck. Yeah. Yuck. He was also Lucas's friend. He, of course, never directed a feature film again following this thing because it's just like, yeah, right, your right. buddy. Well, I actually this. read that like after the movie failed, Hyuk and Katz, who were, I think, married, and they, she produced it. They both wrote it together. He directed oh, it. it was a married couple thing. Right. And they were like old friends of Lucas, you know, like having written American Graffiti and stuff like that. And they just like after the movie failed, just left for Hawaii and refused to read any of the reviews. Right, because why would you? Let me get the fuck out of here. Fuck it. Yeah, complete fucking disaster. I I do imagine that like in the making of it, they probably were like, this is either going to be amazing or more likely be horrible. Oh, yeah. But what it's not is going to be anything in between. No, there's no cohesive (laughs) storyline. Let's make this weird sex shit between humans and ducks. And anyway, so this movie was nominated for seven. Razzies in 1986 and won four, including Worst New Star for the six people that ended up acting in the duck suit. Okay. Because that was one thing is, I guess George Lucas had spent like $2 million on this duck suit. It was originally supposed to be a child actor, didn't work out, so then it was a bunch of randos. His animatronic head is different sizes. It was just fucking disaster. It looks terrible. It looks terrible. That's why they never showed it in the preview. Because in the looks, trailer, they literally don't show his face. Because his eyes, yeah. Ugh. Talk about Uncanny Valley. Mm-hmm. But it won, it lost for one, lost. However it you want to put it. <laughs> it won for worst visual effects. Worst screenplay and worst picture, which it tied with Princes Under the Cherry Moon, which I resent. <laughs> this is one of only two films based on a Marvel comic to win the Razzie for worst picture. The other was Fantastic Four from 2015. Which oh, yeah, which I heard that was really bad. Really fucking yeah, bad. Yeah. It was also nominated for three Razzies, including worst director, worst supporting actor, Tim Robbins, who's he out really of is control. He's terrible in this movie. And then it was nominated for worst song, which I completely disagree with because that was the best goddamn thing about about this movie. Howard the Duck. It's a classic. Feathers touch. I something something. He shoots an arrow into her heart. Howard, the, yeah. You, there's I no feel way like you. Most most of your love for this movie comes from Leah Thompson and her whole style, her hair. One thousand percent. Her clothes. Well, you hear the beginning. Beep. 
beep, beep. Yeah. I'm like, this is Prince is Prince involved? Right, like it really right. sounds like okay, I'm I'm down, Purple uh. Rain. But then yeah, it turns out to be terrible. Leah Thompson did all the singing though in the in the group wow. Cherry Bomb. What? Wow. And <laughs> yeah. I, I want to say about the movie that I read that there were rumors that the Universal production heads Frank Price and Sidney Sheinberg they got into a fist fight after arguing over who was to blame for green light in the movie. They both denied that, but I believe it. Totally. Well, because I read shortly after the film's release, Frank Price quit his job as head of Universal mm-hmm. and Variety reported the story with the headline Duck Cooks Price's Goose. It's a cleverness. It's cleverer than the movie. Copywriter. It's so great. (laughs) After it bombed in the US, the title was changed to Howard, a new breed of hero in countries like the UK and Australia. This is interesting to me. George Lucas was in debt after having recently built the Skywalker Ranch Mm -hmm. complex for $50 million, which is Mm -hmm. crazy. So he was counting on this film to make him some money. And when it bombed, he was forced to start selling off assets. And his friend Steve Jobs offered to buy Lucasfilm's newly launched CGI division, which then later became Pixar. I was about to say, I was like, this time's out for that. Yeah, yeah dude, like but did 86. you know? I knew that Lucas had to sell off a bunch of his stuff, and I didn't know the reason was this movie. <laughs> yes! Because <laughs> I knew that Pixar was like this whole thing that, yeah, was under Industrial Light and Magic, and Ed Catmull and the whole team that wound up running Pixar came yeah. from them. And yeah, Steve Jobs bought it and became Pixar, but like... It was all because of this movie? Yeah, dude. Of course, you have to put into context like just what's going on at the time. So, a lot of cocaine. A lot of cocaine, certainly. Mm-hmm. Clearly, desperation for money is one thing, too. Right. But because I found this article called Howard the Duck, the film Marvel is too embarrassed to talk about, because mm. I never think of it in terms of this being the first big budget Marvel movie. And he kind of unpacks why it was such a flop or like why it could have been a success because Mm. first of all, you know, Marvel most of the time deals with superheroes whereas this is just a fucking adult 27-year-old man who happens to be a duck. From another planet. (laughs) Yeah, and that's that's that. But at the time that it was written, most of the the 60s comic resurgence had kind of died down and like all of the heroes had already been invented. So at a certain point, it was like their only buzzworthy title was Conan, the barbarian. And so at that point, writers like Steve Gerber who wrote... Howard the Duck were given free reign and if they created a talking duck that was popular so be it and that's totally fine and so like Howard was this crazy kind of countercultural phenomenon at the time because it was absurdist and there was some satire maybe there was a little bit of R-rated sexiness I don't know like so much so that his fictional political party the All Night Party pulled in thousands of write-in votes in the 1976 presidential campaign oh that's funny and Gerber made a bunch of money selling campaign buttons and stuff like Disney ended up suing over similarities between Donald Duck and Howard the Duck. Mm-hmm, so Howard mm-hmm. the Duck had to wear pants and stuff. So it was like, it was kind of a thing. By the right. time I certainly grew up watching it, Howard the Duck was not a countercultural revolutional no. icon. But I can totally imagine this just like, it's a it, it's weird. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a duck, but he's also just like you. Well, and especially in the mid 80s, it seemed like a good idea to do as an animated movie. And that's mm-hmm. initially what it was planned well, to be. Yeah. But then Universal Studios needed a big film for the summer of 86. And then with George Lucas involved, it was like, this live action version is going to look great. Right. And of course, it was all over the map because it was marketed as being this special effects, all ages romp, but, mm-hmm. you know, from the mind of George Lucas. But meanwhile, there's fucking duck tits. It's right. still like the most sexual Marvel film out there. Yeah. And George Lucas at this time is also losing his mind and like had made choices that a lot of Star Wars fans disagree with in terms of like in Return of the Jedi in the early 80s, he's got the Ewoks, which 
a lot of people see as like just a ploy to sell more toys. Totally. And so this movie is certainly a way to sell even more merchandise more than yes. it is telling a good story. There's in no a movie. fucking story, right? Yeah. Because remember we were like I think it was 45 minutes or something It's before. more than 45 minutes into the movie before they explain anything about Howard coming here or that there's another villain yeah. or that there's anything going on. The actual plot of the movie beyond Howard shows up in Cleveland and <laughs> becomes friends with this chick. Yeah, totally. It, <laughs> well, and I, you know, I generally look at the factual goofs and that kind of shit mm-hmm. for, with these movies, but it even said on IMDb there were just more mistakes about nuclear reactors made than possible and I parallel that. universes and all that kind mm-hmm. of shit. Yeah. A real quick thing is the idea of the level one parallel universe, which we've talked about before a bunch on yeah. this show. And that's kind of what's being presented with that initial voiceover idea of like (laughs) if the world is made up of a wardrobe and you can only do the same outfit enough time god that's a terrible explanation but you (laughs) the point being it's as good as the explanation in the movie what if if there's infinite worlds there's worlds with anything in them right and if you go far enough you can find a duck that's doing this that's literally your world and it's funny because it's a duck guy though yeah but it's a world (laughs) that he didn't make yeah so (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) All right. So when we're first introduced to Tim Robbins, crazy mad scientist character Mm. on, on his wall, there's like this explanation for how Howard came to be. It's similar to the evolution of man. Right. Instead, the ducks had a progenitor, you know, had the ancestor and then it turned into the Neanderthal duck and then the Cro-Magnon duck. Right. Instead of apes, they're ducks. Which is interesting because Cro-Magnon man, it refers to the Cro-Magnon rock shelter in southwestern France where they found the original (laughs) Homo sapien fossils. Uh So it's like, it's not the the name of the guy, you know, that's where they found it. But whatever. (laughs) That's where I draw the line, Jeff. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so while I was taking my notes, I initially typed human-animal hybrids. I wasn't quite sure, but Mm. I I ended up finding this this article about an experiment building on the results of a team that created a pig-human hybrid last year. And we, we talked about this before, I think on the Splice episode, maybe. Yeah, we were talking about human organs being grown within an animal. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. So this time, researchers at Stanford University have created a sheep-human hybrid. So similarly to the last experiment, the researchers say the purpose of creating it is to find out if it might be possible to grow human organs inside these animals to replace defective ones in humans. The reason why they're using sheep is because its organs are roughly the same size as humans. And it's also the in vitro fertilization that has to happen is is easier to do in sheep than it is in pigs. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that patients wouldn't reject the animal organs because the cells used to create them would be their own. And I think like when we were first learning about this, I was very just like, no, I don't get it. I just like, (laughs) how does it work? But it's fascinating and yet kind of gross. So the process starts with collecting human stem cells, which can grow into any kind of organ. And then an embryo is harvested from an animal and its DNA is modified to deactivate the part that would normally be in charge of developing the desired organ. So the animal's growing except for its organ spot. And then they're able to insert the human stem cells into the embryo, which is then implanted into the uterus of the animal that donated it. Mm -hmm. And severe air quotes on donated the organ. So then in that case, a human organ like a liver could grow inside of this volunteer animal and the embryo would grow into an adult. Obviously, they'd kill the animal and then the organ would be taken to the human. So Mm. right now it's in the stages where only... 0.01% of the cells in the sheep embryo were human and the rest were just sheep 
cells. So it's not, you know, when people are freaked out about this idea of sheep-human hybrids, it's like, no, it's just eventually they might get to the point where just the organ can be used. Right. I find that pretty unethical for not the reasons that they're saying. It's not. I'm not concerned about human animal hybrids necessarily i'm more just like yeah should we do this to animals to animals like we're already kind of gross to them and at the same time that we're kind of moving away from that and especially with the 3d printing of organs Mm -hmm. i i just feel like it's cool that we can do it but should we well this is the kind of thing that we've talked about before where it's like there are these interim steps that are better than our other things but are still not the the best possible choice yeah and like we want to get to the best possible choice because 3d printing organs is not today whereas this is today right and so we don't want to be doing this forever but it is better than not doing it or doing something different that we have today right because i don't know if we ever talked about the statistics or whatever but the the process of actually having human organ donors is painstaking like the wait lists are so extreme and And it's about like preserving it for more than four hours after being out of the body and being able to transport that i've talked about this before if we were able to extend the lifetime of the organs by just four more hours then we would get rid of the wait list for organs altogether so like i was saying as of now they're nowhere near the point where people need to start like freaking out but because especially these embryos were not allowed to mature into adults they're Mm -hmm. killed after 28 days but you know, there's going to be that days one. Later. Yeah. There's going to be that mad scientist that's like, but what if I secretly keep yeah. it in my own layer to right. do my own experiments and then it'll probably go horribly wrong. And well, that's the story that's of Splice. splice. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to see if humans disappeared, what would be considered to be the dominant species of the world? I can tell you right now that it wouldn't be ducks. Not ducks, not ducks. Apes, perhaps? Perhaps, but actually, maybe not. Oh. You could make the argument that the world today is and always has been dominated by bacteria. Oh, sure. They certainly outnumber us, but I don't think that outnumbering is what we mean by dominant. Otherwise, ants and rats are already beaten. Yeah, cockroaches and shit. Mm -hmm. So there's also arguments to be made that the current era is in an age of flowering plants. But let's not get into that because we'll just wind up revisiting M. Night's The Happening. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) The plants aren't going to take over in the way that at least we have. Right, right. So humans obviously are fundamentally self-centered. We thought the Earth was the center of the universe for a while, Mm -hmm. and some of us still think that we're the only life out there. So, of course, we take this view when considering who dominates the world Mm -hmm. because we're doing it from a perspective of our own lives. Right. Planet of the Apes is a movie that imagines our closest primate relatives who basically gained a couple of the abilities that we we had, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. But the kind of extinction event that would kill humans would also probably kill similar apes right. and things that are the closest to us in life form. Totally. A quick aside, I looked into the Neanderthal extinction, mm-hmm. and it turns out that we didn't just kill them and mate with them and integrate their DNA into ours. And it also wasn't just the ending of the Ice Age, which changed hunting for the Neanderthals, uh-huh. but we also really fucked them over with transmission of tropical diseases. Interesting including the sexual ones, which we brought from Africa. The, so, so are you saying, when you say we, you mean we, like homo, homo sapiens? Homo sapiens, okay, yeah, exactly. To the, oh, I didn't know that homo sapiens like killed out the Neanderthals. Yes, exactly. How did I not know that? I don't know, but I wanted to look way deeper into it, but I wanted to at least mention that tidbit for now. Of yeah. like, we're responsible for their death. We still have some of their DNA, so we think that they we They're integrated right. with them a little bit. Interesting. But it was really the diseases that we were carrying and the changes to their DNA that wound up allowing them to be more susceptible to stuff 
that they otherwise weren't okay. before we started interacting with them. I totally thought it was just like, you know, it was such a stretch of time that no. evolution, am I right? Oh, no, it's wow. crazy to think of this time where there was this other similar to human species that we could even mate with. That's fucked <laughs> Uh, wow, yeah, right. I, I feel like I need to do a dive on this now. Because well, that's the thing about, like, you know, the early days of racism as yeah. the, the Europeans discovered black people and right. thought that they were literally a different species. This was a time where there literally was a different, a different species. species that looked kind of like you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yikes. Okay, mental note. Uh huh. <laughs> So back to the non-human dominant species. Mm. It's not like some species will come in and suddenly develop intelligence the way that we have it now. Because evolution doesn't select for intelligence inherently. Mm -hmm. It selects for an increase in survival and reproductive success. And you could argue that, of course, intelligence does increase survival and reproductive success. Mm -hmm. But other things increase that, too. And so intelligence doesn't necessarily get selected for. Right. So I read this article that gave me all this great information. And then at the end, it was like, the answer of what will become the dominant species is both dissatisfying and thrilling all at once. And the answer was, we have no fucking idea. Totally. Looking at various mass extinctions through Earth's history, they're usually followed by a rapid adaptive radiation of new species, Uh as it's called, which basically means that totally new life forms grew after the mass extinction that was unlike anything that came before. Right. Well, and I also feel like we're, well, what we're experiencing is that evolution on a pretty massive scale with technology and stuff. Right, right. So, because I think of climate and just environment as as the thing that would probably kill us and whatnot and like eradicate us from the earth. However, we're really good at being able to like create little biodomes and Mm -hmm, shit where mm -hmm. you would be able to survive, where I don't know how many other species are capable of doing that. Right. And that's the thing where it's like in a world where we don't survive that. Yeah. the, the, The fact is the small creatures that ran around like under the dinosaurs that wound up surviving that extinction event Mm -hmm. looked very different before that extinction event than after because then they became cave bears and mastodons and whales. And one of the earliest known mass extinctions, the reptiles that survived it, like at the time did not foreshadow the dinosaurs and mammals and birds that would eventually come from those. Right. So these extinction events are kind of like resets that wind up causing a whole new unexpected next turn. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I even think about what during the Jurassic Park episode when we're learning how bird-like the actual dinosaurs, the raptors were and stuff. And so... You can see them in birds today. You're like, yeah, you probably are some crazy offshoot. But you would never expect the bird based on what was then right. the, the dinosaur. Mm-hmm. So it's like totally Yeah, they were like possible. massive at the time. Remember we talked yeah. about like just the density of the air and all whatever it was that made the, the insects big. Oxygen was yeah. a higher percentage <laughs> yeah. at the time. It was, yeah. yeah. And like, you know, who knows? It's possible that 50 million years after an extinction event that kills us, ants or some descendant of ants that look nothing like ants that are these other types of things Uh that we couldn't predict would be the dominant species on the planet. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's basically humans that look like animals. You know what I mean? Like, again, because I kind of just want to roll right into this, right? Because I, you know, after my animal human hybrid thing, I then typed duck human. Oh boy. And I stumbled upon anthropomorphism in general. And mm-hmm. this this really speaks to what we're talking about because even Planet of the Apes, especially the the most recent ones where they look very 
human-like, right? right? They're just right. The, the emotion in the eyes and all that stuff. Uh-huh. We have a tendency to anthropomorphize. Now, what I mean by that, it's when human traits, emotions, or intentions are being attributed to non-human entities. Mm-hmm. The term was coined by the Greek philosopher Xenophanes when describing the similarity between religious believers and their gods' appearances. So, of course, at the time... Greek gods were depicted as having light skin and blue eyes, while African gods had dark skin and brown eyes. Okay. That doesn't happen anymore, though. People don't imagine God in their own likeness these That's days. Never, <laughs> yeah, what never, we, been a, never heard of that. Santa is white, y'all. Right. Fucking Megyn Kelly. Damn it. Anyway. So this anthropomorphism is considered an innate tendency of human psychology, and research has shown that the degree to which individuals anthropomorphize can have consequences in their lives. Because when you think about it, you know, in relation to nature, it can lead to better environmental conservation or, you know, animal rights, that kind of thing. When you're like, oh, my little baby puppy, you're just like me talking to you. But extreme examples of this are also linked to psychological issues and social concerns like an anxious attachment to objects that leads to hoarding or forcing wild animals to behave in unnatural ways for the sake of human entertainment, mm-hmm. etc. But I was reading about some neuroscience research that has shown that similar brain regions are involved when we think about the behavior of both humans and non-human entities. But you have to be able to explain, like, why don't we do this to all things at all time? I'm not like, oh, hat. Hi, hat. You're my hat. It's But we do it a little bit. But we do. I do talk to my hat. A little (laughs) bit, right? We definitely do. But (laughs) probably more so with things that are similar to us in the sense that, Mm. you know, if they have faces. Right. Or, you know. Yeah, I'm more likely to apologize to a teddy bear than I am to a chair. Correct. That I bump. Right, exactly. Whether it's, you know, an animal that kind of looks like a human or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. or moves like a human rather, not that looks like that doesn't exist yet. But <laughs> monkeys kind of. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, talking about the neuroscientific angle, it just helps us to simplify and make more sense of very complicated entities. For example, according to the World Meteorological Organization, the naming of hurricanes and storms simplifies and facilitates effective communication to enhance public preparedness, media reporting, and the efficient exchange of information. Like, mm-hmm. that's w- that's why they claim that they named them Maria, Katrina, right. whatever, which I never really thought about. I, I thought it was just like one name. name is as good as another, but I'm like, yeah, they are people. Yeah, they, they could come and they could destroy your whole town. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maria's coming. No, when you say Harvey, you're just like, eh, well, I guess oh boy. I was like, t- <laughs> I was like, what a harmless name. What a, totally no. could never harm a fly. <laughs> That's crazy. All right. Now, anthropomorphism in reverse is known as dehumanization, which mm. is when humans are represented as non-human objects or animals. We've seen examples of this in history, like the Nazis and Abu mm. Ghraib and unfortunately Vietnam. a couple weeks ago with our fucking president who that, referred to people as animals. But too. So it's the, the authors of the study conclude that few of us, quote, have difficulty identifying other humans in a biological sense, but it is much more complicated to identify them in a psychological sense. I mean, I find it interesting too because then I started looking into ways throughout history that we've kind of used animals to describe people or at least like here's an example like hawk or hawk Mm. You know, initially mm-hmm. they have it has two different uses because initially it referred to a man's appearance, usually someone with a hawked nose. Okay, but then also the verb to hawk, meaning mm-hmm. to hunt birds by means of a trained hawk, was used in the late Middle Ages, and that eventually led to meaning to strike like a hawk. Mm-hmm. So it took a while for hawk and hawkish to refer to people who are supporters of war, but became widespread in the '60s. I know of hawk referring to politicians that are about war right there's also something called chicken hawk which is used to mean a person who strongly supports war but has never been 
in the service. Okay. You're like, bah, bah, bah. Right. you're a chicken, <laughs> meaning you're scared, right? That's right. another thing that we've done. Initially, like in Samuel Johnson's 1755 dictionary, he included a figurative meaning of animal, which Webster later included almost 100 years later. And it's this, quote, by way of contempt, we say of a stupid man that he is a stupid animal. So then there was a distinction made in 1934 that was pertaining to the sentient part of a creature as distinguished from the intellectual, rational, or spiritual. For example, our animal appetites and Mm. daily wants. Think of the Muppet drummer animal. Yeah. He's that. He's the best. (laughs) Playing Wipeout. (laughs) Totally. What is that? Oh, is that Wipeout? I think so. Yeah. Wipeout. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) All right. Drumming. (laughs) Whew. Sense memories. Anyway, there's political animal, which is someone that's active in politics that has been used since the 1700s. Mm -hmm. There's animal magnetism, which was introduced Mm -hmm. around the same time we talked about as just like those inexplicable desires, Mm -hmm. which I think is just our id, right? Yeah. It's these base things that like we all share with the animal kingdom versus the differences that we like to point out more often. I consider myself a party animal, which uh, (laughs) was actually first used by Bill Murray in an SNL sketch from 1977. Didn't know that. That was the origin of that? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, totally. But think about dove, you know, is it right now it means as an opponent of war, right? So I think it was originally used as a term of endearment, which went back to the early 1600s, usually referring to a child or a woman Mm -hmm. because they're indistinguishable, as we know. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Children, women, (laughs) at all. But then also in the Bible, the dove brought news that the flood was receding to Noah and like extended his little olive branch. So Mm -hmm. then that created the whole imagery of like peace and love or Mm -hmm. whatever. But again, it it made a resurgence during the Vietnam War. So it was the hawks versus the doves, which we still kind of use. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes a lot of sense i don't know if doves are predators ever yeah are they not they're just hanging out right it makes beautiful i do totally think of them as like a christmas ornament just great soap great soap (laughs) (laughs) this is a good one fox this has been anthropomorphized in very different ways the oldest way of course is to mean a clever or crafty person Mm -hmm. so they they record this back to old english like a thousand a.d or whatever the crafty as a fox was Mm -hmm. the preferred idiom until 1940 when crazy like a fox Mm -hmm. became more popular yeah then a very different meaning arrived in the 20th century which meant a good looking young man or woman right so yeah foxy vixen which is the word for a female fox did not know that i didn't know that no but it makes sense it does it at one point was an ill-tempered woman, and then it meant an attractive woman. Silver fox is used to to describe a middle-aged man who's got graying hair, or mm-hmm. whatever. And then finally, because we did Howard the Duck, <laughs> right? Duck has been a term of endearment in British English since at least Shakespeare's time, used as an equivalent of darling, which is like, hey, duck. Hey, duck. Ugh, I don't get it. <laughs> hey, dove. Yeah. You lucky duck. Yeah, yeah. No, but you're exactly right because then later it started to mean like in the 1900s, lucky duck came in just to, you're lucky and ducks kind of rhymes with duck. It does kind of rhyme with luck. And yeah. so lucky why duck, not? Cute. But then odd duck means a strange person goes back to the early 1900s. Uh-huh. Lame duck originally referred to a failing company or businessman, but then was applied to politicians who were waiting for their office to end. Their, I can't believe there wasn't a lame duck pun in this movie. I, well, the whole movie was a lame fucking duck. Oh. I did do think they said dead duck, which means one that is doomed, but, you know, it's right. very on the nose. Yeah. He is a... There's a lot of duck stuff, yeah. but I guess duck hunting <laughs> is a thing that yeah. people wound up, like, using as idioms of, like... Totally. You got 
two in the bush, one in the <laughs> hand. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a linguist. I just really like how these terms, you know, transition over time. Yeah, it's you interesting know. how how many of them become opposites. Even absolutely, you know? you're yeah. either like sneaky as fuck, or mm-hmm. you're attractive. You're ill-tempered, or you're also attractive. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in this movie, they use a laser spectroscope, which gets accidentally enhanced by bad aliens, which sucks Howard from his living room on Duck Planet all the way to Earth. Only his lazy boy, no one around him. <laughs> it doesn't make any a lick of sense. No. But whatever insanity ha- this movie has going on, the words laser spectroscope applies to a real thing. Oh, no. I did not <laughs> expect that. In laser spectroscopy, chemists train a laser beam on a sample, which then returns a light source that can be analyzed by a spectrometer. Okay. Basically, it's a way to measure things that are far away by seeing how the laser bounces off certain types of atoms. Interesting, because they did... I'm actually actually surprised that they even said that they were trying to measure the atmosphere of the right. space around his planet or something right, like right. that. Right, <laughs> Especially because we didn't even at that time know for sure that any exoplanets beyond our solar system even right. existed. So but kudos- I guess those ideas were still being applied to within the solar system. Gotcha. Kudos for them to be in, you know, ahead of the pack. Yeah. All right. <laughs> or the gaggle. Yeah. What are ducks? What flock? What, a flock? flock? Flock of ducks? Flock of seagulls. All right. <laughs> but so doing all that with the spectrometer, it lets us know whether the atom is a hydrogen atom or a helium atom or carbon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And using that, we can start to know what kind of atmosphere a distant planet is made of. So it works great for things that are in a gaseous phase, but it's still just a measurement mm-hmm. of light. And it can't retrieve an alien duck, no right. matter how... <laughs> much it gets enhanced by other bad aliens. Oh, God. You don't need a laser to do spectrometer work. The Hubble telescope has a spectrometer on it and is often used to identify atmospheres of distant planets. And what we hope to see someday is a change in the makeup of those planets that might indicate life existing there. But our understanding is still so early that we might easily misinterpret natural phenomena as being definitive evidence of life. Totally. Yeah. Oof. But these spectrometers, like, that's our best current way of measuring something really far away by being like, it reacts to light like this. Yeah, that's and cool. things that are he- near here react in the same way. We can figure it out. If only there was any actual science in this movie. <laughs> I know. Well, that was the closest <laughs> that, was that the it one. came, yeah, came totally. to. <laughs> Well, another thing that we learned on the wall of Tim Robbins' lab. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they just had random science words, and one of them they was anatidae. And I, in the moment, looked it up. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? And what it's does that mean? the biological family of birds that includes ducks, geese, and swans. Of course it is. So, thank you. <laughs> of course. Anyway, I wanted to look into duck facts. Yeah. <laughs> and I learned some fun things about ducks. I didn't know much about them, but... One cool thing is that ducks have adapted to sleep while keeping a lookout for danger by closing one eye in order to put half their brain to sleep while what? keeping the other eye open and the other half of their brain awake and alert. Wait a minute. That's a crazy awesome idea. Yeah. Why don't we have the ability to be half awake right. at all times and then and then just alternate and then you could kind of be yeah. half awake the whole day? Yeah, like, like you get some rest, but you're not just completely down for the count. Don't Hang we on, have... I gotta switch to my other side of my brain. Right, totally. <laughs> this side needs a nap. Well, because we have, I think, a turn of phrase. It's like, sleep with one eye open, but no one actually does that. You're not asleep. But in the that ducks case. do? They fucking do. Wow. I'm so wrong. So even when a flock of ducks are together, half-napping ducks positioned on the outside of the group would keep their outside eye open mm-hmm. and, you know, face towards the outside and the other eye. 
It's Look a great natural center. alarm system. Hopefully there's like a switch off because what about the dicks in the center that just get to fully sleep? <laughs> Hopefully they take turns. Yeah, come on. <laughs> get it together, civilized ducks. Yeah. So researchers in 2016 found that as soon as ducklings hatch, they have a remarkable degree of abstract intelligence. I didn't look into like the specifics of how they measured this or whatever, mm-hmm. which I want to do in the in the future. But abstract intelligence is defined as the capacity to understand and manage abstract ideas and symbols. In us, it's essential for things like creative problem solving, a sense of humor, coming up with new ideas, inventions, and that kind of thing. So conventional scientific wisdom has held that this was only possible in a handful of super intelligent animals like apes and dolphins. But this study's co-author has said, to our knowledge, this is the first demonstration of a non-human organism learning to discriminate between abstract relational concepts without any reinforcement training. So wow. I will include the the links and everybody can take a look and I'll read about that. But I was like, wow, thanks, <laughs> mental floss or whatever. No, tyrant yeah. farms. That's what <laughs> I found. I've, like a duck farm was giving me facts. So hopefully right. these are... Is uh, a fact check. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I do love that, like, there are these various things, like the mirror test we've yeah. talked about before, where a- whether an animal can recognize itself in the mirror. And it's like, well, ducks have the ability of abstract thinking. Right. Right. <laughs> well, and we've done a ton of talks about that, like, with, whether it's like chimp experiments or whatever, or just like learning that clearly animals have a different way of communicating language mm-hmm. and it's not all based on what because we anthropomorphize right. and we're just expecting people funny, to be like though, us because we do all this anthropomorphization <laughs> yeah <nailed laughs> but it. also like we constantly are saying that these things are not human right. and not close enough and then every single thing that we learn about them is like they're way smarter than we thought before right. and they I can know. do all this thinking we're just never-ending hypocrites because we totally yeah. do that we'll be like how dare you refer to people like animals and yet we're like my little baby's gotta go everywhere with yeah. me in my purse you know it's all like, this stuff about the human-centric view of the universe i'm actually going to get even more into that in a minute oh cool yeah. looking forward to it but before that i want to <laughs> tell you in most species males I'm sorry, not in most species. In most bird species, <laughs> males don't have penises. <laughs> okay. They, yeah, didn't know how they... Cause how they, do they... The egg, the fertile... I don't know. Uh, <laughs> now, drakes, which are male ducks, did uh, not know that a male duck was a drake, but mm, keep mm, that in mind, yeah. Drake, the rapper. Anyway, they have extraordinarily long corkscrew-shaped penises. Right. Did you know this? I've heard of the corkscrew penis. I didn't. So an average length of a duck's penis is about eight inches, but what? there's what? Yes. Oh, but it's all coiled. It's, and it's coiled and it's narrow. It's skinny. I don't know. Like the intestines are 20 something feet. Precisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one species of ducks, the Argentine lac duck, has a 17 inch long penis, which is one of the longest in the animal kingdom. Damn. Seems like too long, man. <laughs> Corkscrews yeah, in there. Yeah, fuck. Is there a corkscrew vagina? Oh. Like I'm going to put that in my corkscrew. things to explore. <laughs> just my, my Google history, guys. Yeah, you have yeah. no fucking idea what yeah, I get yeah. into. Just corkscrew <laughs> vagina duck? Question mark? Anyway, number, f- however number I have facts yeah, here. Anyway, number next. <laughs> a duck's average flight speed is 50 miles per hour, and some ducks are even faster, to, to give you some reference. That's really fast. Yeah, Usain Bolt can barely top 23 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. He's a pretty fast guy. Now, a red-breasted <laughs> merganser or something was recorded flying at 100 miles per hour, which is about 40 miles per hour faster than a cheetah. So, that's, which so I, is that the fastest thing in the world? That's what I thought. Or I like, guess the cheetah is the fastest land, land animal. animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm glad you specified because I was like, hey, all of my previous reading. <laughs> I guess it makes sense. Like, airplanes can go faster than cars. Right. Mm, anyway. 
Now, in terms of how far that these ducks can go, with a good tailwind, mallards can travel 800 miles in an eight-hour flight, which is longer than the entire state of California. Wow. And they'll just rest and feed for up to weeks or whatever between mm-hmm. between flights. And usually ducks stay in an altitude range between 200 to 4,000 feet, but the record is 21,000 feet. Which do you, how, how high do airplanes go, do you know? About 30,000 up to 45 at oh, the most. Oh, okay. But I wonder yeah. why it doesn't affect their, you know, like the air pressure or whatever doesn't affect them as much. I guess they must be able to live off of less oxygen than we are, for Wait, one. My next duck fact has to do with this. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Yikes. Sorry. A bird's lungs are only about half the size of a mammal's lungs proportionally. They also don't change in size or inflate and deflate like our lungs do. Okay. So instead, air is drawn through their lungs unidirectionally via a series of air sacs, some of which extend into their bones. Oh, wow. So yeah, like human lungs, they're inflated and deflated by a diaphragm, but birds don't have those. Mm -hmm. So instead, their air sacs are ultimately controlled by their muscles, meaning the more that they move, the more air comes into the air sac. So maybe because they're moving so fast at that altitude, they actually are getting a similar level of oxygen. So like, yeah, when they're taking off for flight or flying, they're essentially filling themselves like a balloon, Hmm. which allows for greater oxygen carbon dioxide exchange, but it also makes them much lighter relative to their body size than when they're not flying. Wow. That's yeah, fucking ducks. These evolutionarily built airplanes really work. Yeah, totally. Thanks, ducks. Science. We do think that life on other planets might form truly unique and unusual forms that's nothing like what we see here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And again, the movie is like exactly like what we see here on Earth with the ducks. Yeah. But what if it was totally different? Yeah. What if they read Play Duck instead of Playboy? Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, most of the best educated <laughs> guesses are based on the idea that conditions on another planet might drive a different type of survival. Okay. So there was this book that was written about this called Alien Worlds, where this guy, David Aguilar, tried to consider non-humanoid life forms. And I'm going to go through a couple of them. Mm -hmm. The main questions you need to ask when considering alien life forms are, what is the creature made of? What is the environment it evolved in? Mm -hmm. How does it eat? What senses does it have? And how does it reproduce? Gotcha. And if you can answer all of those questions within this like other environment, yeah. you can wind up with a totally different life form. Absolutely. So the first is the idea of these beach rollers, as he called it. Basically, these might exist on a planet or a moon with insane tidal pressures, mm-hmm. which means that there are huge ocean waves like 60 feet tall that crashes on, on the beaches all the time. Mm-hmm. Aguilar thought of the airbags in a car and imagined crustaceans that have an airbag that could inflate as the waves smash them onto the beach, and then they could safely go up and lay their eggs wh- or whatever they do and then crawl back into the water. Gotcha. <laughs> whatever the fuck they do. You know. no, <laughs> reproduce. <laughs> But, right. But like the idea of like yeah. in this environment, there would be this evolutionary response to allow for yeah. an airbag inflation. I feel like they do a really good job of explaining that even in the movie Alien, right? They're yeah. like, what are the conditions that would make him have acid blood or whatever right. the fuck? Exactly. He imagines another planet with a haze, like a fog that's so thick you can't see more than five feet in any direction at any time. But maybe there would be organisms here that would navigate by emitting and receiving odors. And it's not crazy to think that an organism would communicate through odors as there are species on Earth that do it now. Absolutely. Like ants leave an odor and that's how they know to travel along the same line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's other ideas about like balloon type organisms that float in gas giants like Jupiter. 
almost like jellyfish, but floating in the environment. Right, okay. exactly, in the gas. Yeah. And then there's other ideas, because there are some planets that are tidally locked, which mm-hmm. means one side is always facing the sun as it goes around. Right. But that means that there would be these areas in twilight where like there's like a ring around the planet where light is kind of hitting it but Mm -hmm. it's mostly dark and this like is like the habitable zone of this planet whereas if you're in total darkness you can't survive if you're in total heat you can't survive Mm -hmm. but there's this thin strip and on those planets we would expect because of the way the cold air and the hot air would be meeting there would be severe winds in those areas Mm -hmm. so he imagines a wind sail like organism that basically Basically spends most of its time just floating up in this constant wind pressure and that it would only come down to the surface during certain times to like lay its eggs or something like that. This is so interesting, especially because a few weeks ago we were talking about H.G. Wells, right? And right. I, this, I am constantly now in this Wells versus Jules Verne right, world, right. right? Where I feel like this is this imagining as a Jules Verne way of doing. Like he, it's not imagining just like any fantastical thing that could be. Right. He's like. No, but in this Let's environment. Let's base it in what we know. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where you can still be imaginative, but. Right, yeah. exactly. And the truth is, we have no idea what's possible until we see it. Mm-hmm. But life is this diverse in response to the various stimuli here on Earth, which is incredibly temperate and normal compared to most totally. planets in the universe. Of course, it's going to get crazier or different on other planets that have features that are unlike anything we see here on Earth. Oh, yeah. I mean, I even. We're always talking about Mars and potentially colonizing it or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's, it's why life on Mars has been such a thing in our collective unconscious for right. so long. That's why like David they... Bowie wondered I know. about life on Mars. <laughs> he wondered about it. <laughs> Science. All right, so this whole thing that they're trying to justify in the movie, Leah Thompson is being like, maybe you're here for some cosmic cause. There's no accidents in the universe, Howard. No such thing as coincidence. Yeah, exactly. So when I typed all of that shit in, I I found the term synchronicity, which Mm. kind of encapsulates all of this. This term was coined by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, which Mm -hmm. we've we've talked about a bunch on this show. His collective unconscious. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So he had a strong belief in a bunch of paranormal phenomenon, including psychic powers, astrology, alchemy, predictive dreams, UFOs, telekinesis. He was also apparently obsessed with numerology, which we covered on the show. It's the belief that certain numbers have special cosmic significance and can predict important life events. Mm -hmm. His concept of synchronicity can be boiled down to describing meaningful coincidences. And this idea came to him during a period of mental illness in the early 1900s, <laughs> which okay. I didn't know. That's always a great prep, uh-huh. you know, preface for ideas. I was out of my mind, yeah, and I, I had this idea. going fucking nuts, and that's when my, you know... <laughs> that's when clarity <laughs> struck. Just, anyway, so he became convinced that everything in the universe is intimately connected, which suggested that there must be a collective unconsciousness of humankind, which also meant that events happening all over the world at the same time must be connected in some unknown way. Well, I believe that. Yeah. You know? Like well, in, yeah, because we talked about collective unconsciousness, and I feel like we were kind of on board with it. Yeah, well, we've also just talked about like the fact that we are connected to each other in ways that aren't necessarily the traditional spiritual way, but in literal ways where... Our connection to each other may seem like it doesn't exist, but we are affecting each other on this planet in ways that we still don't understand fully. Yeah, and like I remember when we were talking about it, I was definitely on board, certainly in the sense of what is like in societies, for example, like what's right. kind of an agreed upon way of being. And when there's like a vacuum of a certain personality type, right. that something or someone will fill that void. Yeah, absolutely. But I think 
when, when this is talking about specifically events not being coincidences, that's mm. when, mm. you know, skeptic brain kind of turns on right. because apparently one of Jung's parent, uh, parents, one of Jung's patients <laughs> told him that when her mother and grandmother died on each occasion, a flock of birds gathered outside the window of the room. Okay. Weird. We're just a lot of bird poultry references. Oh yeah. This show. <laughs> birds everywhere in this episode. Yeah. So also this woman's husband who had had symptoms of heart problems went out to see a doctor and on his way back collapsed in the street. And apparently shortly after he'd left to go to the doctor, a large flock of birds had descended onto the house. So the wife immediately recognized this as a sign of her husband's impending death. Hmm. Right? So if you're associating just a flock of birds with a sign of death, mm-hmm. you're making patterns out of what may or may not actually be a pattern, right? Right. Well, there's a lot of flocks of birds. Exactly. So it's, There's a lot of death. Right. It's clearly easy to see why synchronicity has mass appeal because it provides meaning and order in an otherwise random universe. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this with the secret. You know, you put positive energy out, you get it back in right, kind, right, whatever. Right. So the skeptic side of this is saying that the appearance of synchronicity is the result of a well-known psychological phenomenon called confirmation bias, Mm -hmm. sometimes described as remembering the hits and forgetting the misses, right? Mm -hmm. We much more easily notice and remember things that confirm our beliefs than those that do not. Yeah, it's the same thing with psychics and stuff like that. The reason that they exist and can thrive is that we forget every single thing that they said wrong and only remember the things where it was like, yeah, my grandfather did have an A in his name. Yes. One of the vowels. (laughs) Right. Weird. It's a real shock. Yeah. So like you were saying before, birds are very common, right? And mm. by random chance, this flock appeared when someone was about to die, just as they appear daily around millions of people who are not going right. to die. And in his book, The Skeptic's Dictionary, Robert Todd Carroll notes that, quote, even if there were a synchronicity between the mind and the world, such that certain coincidences resonate with transcendental truth, there would still be the problem of figuring out those truths. What guide could one possibly use to determine the correctness of an interpretation? We talk about this with the idea of psychics or being able to predict the future. What the fuck do you do with that information? Right. You know, synchronicity can't really be studied in any rational way because it's all very subjective truth. Mm -hmm. You know, if you really believe that a flock of birds means that death is impending, how many birds at what time during the day? Who is death? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we try to ascribe all these meanings to the things that are around us. Sometimes we're right often we're wrong. Yeah. And that's where I don't think that there are no coincidences. I think there are many coincidences and our pattern-finding brains ascribe meaning to them. And certainly at the time that Jung was popular, he was sort of able to create this veneer of science with the quantum physics aspect of it. He had a friend who's a physicist, Wolfgang Pauli, who helped promote these ideas. Mm -hmm. So I think of him very similarly to how I feel about Freud, where I think that there's real significant ideas there. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think, studying his his work is important, but he was at a different fucking time. Right. We know a lot more now than we did then. Like even the Myers-Briggs personality test, mm-hmm. which I've taken a bunch of times yeah. and put a lot of value into, right, right. that's also been widely challenged as invalid and unscientific for those same reasons because well, there's new ways of... We've talked about this out. before too a lot of where it's like the evolution of ideas includes an idea that had to bridge the gap and was a better idea than what came before it and will lead to the actual truth but 
isn't the truth in its own right. Hell yeah. And you know, it, we talk about this when it relates to the Big Bang mm-hmm. and how like that was the best idea that we've had for the last number of decades. Right. But people are challenging it now because there are things about it that don't fully explain it. But it explains it a lot better than the steady state universe theory that existed before, exactly. which was that everything always existed and always will. Right. And especially when you enter the world of psychology, you can't not consider the, the people involved in making these claims. Right. I didn't know that Jung was going through a period of mental craziness or <laughs> right. whatever when he came up with these ideas. Maybe he saw Mr. Freud. Right. <laughs> right. What does it mean, Dr. Freud? <laughs> Did you have any favorite lines? <sighs> Favorite? <laughs> I mean, I took down a whole list of all the ridiculous puns they used. Oh, There's yeah? May Nest and W.C. Fowles. May in, Nest I liked. Yeah. Oh, yeah, W.C. Fowles. Yeah, in My Little Chickadee. Breeders of the Lost Stork. <laughs> yeah, okay. Rolling Egg. Rolling, Rolling Egg is really bad. Lazy, lazy fucking bones. Yeah. Play Duck. Mallard Card for MasterCard. I actually kind of That one wasn't that, that bad. Blooming Ducks. Marshington, D.C. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He lives in Marshington, D.C. Although he lives in <laughs> New Stork City, Which is too, a way clever yeah. name. The dollar bill had a duck bill on... George Washington's face, but right. there was still Washington, D.C. because they're lazy and yeah, they didn't actually like... We noticed inconsistencies in the duck world. Mm-hmm. I wrote down the line, we have no right to tamper with the universe. Yeah, well... Like, what the I fuck? I mean, bless your heart, that's the only like somewhat, you know, poignant thing. Well, of course, there's... That's it. No more Mr. Nice Duck. Lame. Fuck that line. Lame. That's a lame duck. No one laughs at a master of quack, quack foo. Yeah, I mean... I almost, none of them rhyme, right. even. I was... You could tell that I was combining quack foo with fuck you, and that's why right. I just said quack. Yeah, yes. Quack foo. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck foo. And then this is just to really emphasize the lazy writing Mm -hmm. this is leah thompson when she thinks that howard is dead she goes this world didn't treat you very good but you saved it (laughs) like no that's not even really great grammar syntax or anything like that's terrible it's not a pun it's just bad fucking writing i don't recommend anybody go see this movie even though I mean, it, unless you want to see 20 minute segment where the duck and Tim Robbins are like flying a plane and about to crash. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about like, a Jeffrey, 20 minute segment where they're about to crash. Yeah. Jeffrey Jones is the bad guy. This is like pre pedophilia. <sighs> Definitely I mean, pre pedophilia. I will say that, you know, there were things that made me curious about, you know, what to look into the future. What would happen if you walked into a nuclear core? Because that's what Jeffrey Jones does. I assume right. just a lot of radiation poisoning. Yeah. You death. would die very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. More about Carl Jung, like what his mm-hmm. life is like. This my my. Briggs test and like why they say it's not valid. People are obsessed with that thing. Oh yeah, I mean even my son, and they'll be like, oh introvert. Half, half of the you. Tinder profiles put put their Myers Briggs uh, information down. That's really fucking disturbing. Mm-hmm. Really, you see a little INTJ. Oh God! It's like ah, girls mm. in LA, get it together, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to look more into this ducks being smart thing. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I I will say I can safely say that as much of a fixture in my life that this movie was, mm-hmm. I frankly do not think I will ever watch it again. And yeah, that's yeah. age 31 for you. That's yeah. where we're at. Well, for me, I also want to look more into the whole Neanderthal extinction and, and the details of how we believe that went Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Cro-Magnon Man, I want to look into. So with that, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's Joya Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and you can find us here in two weeks. We're taking next week off, mm-hmm. doing the movie Battle Royale 
Royale. Oh, such a good time. Fucking amazing. Yeah. So, so Jeff's going to take a little vacay, and then we're going to get back to some kids killing each other. Some right? kids killing yes, each other, God, exactly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Bye. Bye.